I'd ask that you grab a copy of the Scriptures and turn to James chapter 2. And if you are someone who doesn't have a copy of the Scriptures, we have Bibles in the entryway as you came in. Feel free to take one. That is a gift to you if you'd like one. And uh, turn to James chapter 2. And uh, James, uh, as we've said prior, he's a pastor. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And this letter likely is the first written in the New Testament. And it's a letter that we read uh, that was written to early Christians. Early Christians who found themselves dispersed, as James says. Living in a land that ultimately, ultimately was not their home. (laughs) Their home is in heaven. The citizenship to a country or the resident to a property where they put their head down at night or where they receive their mail, that is only temporary, the Bible says. James writes a letter to faithful followers on how to live in the world that they find themselves now. And in that sense, 2,000 years later, we're in the exact same place. Navigating our life in this world until we arrive to the celestial city, the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of Christ. So this is a very practical letter, James is. There are many commands, laws, and expectations on the Christian. And James gives these practical suggestions to us on the basis of a relationship with Jesus. This is not a self-help book. This is not a recipe of suggestions to improve your morality. It is not, the book of James is not a formula that you can follow to be better received by God. No, as we read in James 1.18, We've been brought forth by grace, by God's will, to be changed by Jesus. We believe that Jesus is enough. That his perfect life and death on the cross was sufficient to make us right with God. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law and any New Testament law or command that you may read. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And now, by His Spirit, we cling to Him. We trust in Him. And as we believe in Him and are transformed by His glory, we meet the commands of God that He would put on our life as a privilege. We live. Faithful followers of Christ live to respond, to obey, to be truly faithful followers of Christ. Why? Because faith is not passive. It's not. But rather it is one of action. And we've been reminded, so far as we've gone through James, we have been reminded in our letter to take action, to pursue joy, to be not just hearers of God's word, but to be doers. And today our main idea in our action is this. Faithful followers of Christ value action, value all. 
We touched on this briefly last week as James introduced, James introduced it in the context of guarding and protecting vulnerable people in our societies. We now see a consideration of what it looks like to value people in the context of living in a community of people where we look different from one another. You see, we naturally play favorites in life. We naturally align ourselves with and choose to spend time with and show honor to people who meet our expectations or our preferences. Well, we read this morning in our passage that this is not the Christian way. We are to value everyone made in the image of God. I believe James would have us to consider this in two ways in our passage. First, we are to value all regardless of status. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2? My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We come to a hypothetical situation. It could be a town meeting or a church service. The word James uses for assembly is the same word as synagogue. But no matter the location, he uses a very Jewish way to say when you guys get together, there's favoritism. In your midst. So a man with a gold ring, a three-piece suit, and an iPhone 13 Pro walks in. And you smile. And you put on your most polished and civilized speech. And you show him to the theater seats with the remote control heat and the remote control back massages. I hear those are nice to have. Meanwhile, the guy with discount shoes, the flip phone, and bedhead gets ignored, given no time, or is left to find his own seat. Now, there's a good chance that you and I have been either on the giving or receiving end of this kind of favoritism in the workplace, in our families, or with our friends at school. We probably aren't too surprised, actually we're not surprised at all, to find favoritism and partiality in the world and culture around us. Increasingly, 
increasingly, the people around us find their tribes, groups, cliques to separate themselves from other people. So whether it's schooling choices, politics, masks, COVID, music, or religion, we live in a world where it is constantly them versus us. My group versus your group. I prefer them, but I don't prefer them. That's the world we live in. But it's the reality of this being in the church. This being true amongst the people of God. That's alarming to James. And it's not simply alarming, it's unbiblical. And favoritism. Favoritism will destroy our church. And any church that does not intentionally address it and celebrate the unity that we have in Christ. And unity is what Paul is, or James rather, is referencing in verses 4 and 5. Making distinctions amongst yourselves, becoming judges with evil thoughts. You see, the church has fallen into the trap. The people of God have fallen into the trap of making distinctions and judging one another judging one another in a way that is simply contrary to the character of God and the gospel of Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Rich or poor, they are equal in God's eyes. And despite their economical situations, they have this in common. They are made in God's image. They are poor in spirit. They are needy of a heart change. They're wayward in their following of God, and they're in need of a Savior. You see, the local church, the assembly of believers, is the last place that we should see favoritism or us versus them. And what's ironic, at least in James' example here, what's ironic is what is likely happening in his day is that favoritism is being shown to the rich man, and it isn't profiting anyone. The rich in verses 6 and 7 are the ones using their position of power and recognition to walk over other people. And this isn't, you know, a snide remark by James, by the way. Like, if you've got some change in your pocket, if you have a measure of wealth, you're the problem. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these rich peoples, in this particular instance, they're oppressing you. They're against you. They seem to, he seems to imply they blaspheme God. The ones you're showing favoritism, they're actually not your friends. And really, favoritism harms everyone. It harms the rich man. The rich man loses out on seeing in humility that he's no different from anyone else. Well, the poor man loses out. The poor man loses out because he's not valued or shown true fellowship. And the one playing favorites, the one in the position saying, I choose the rich guy against the poor guy, that guy's losing out as well. Because in the long run, it doesn't gain him anything to play favorites. And it's really a failure to practice the implications of true religion that we talked about last week. So, James comes in with a command in verse 1. To you and I, 
Show no partiality, he says, my brothers, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Show no partiality. And you may have a translation that says, show no favoritism or do not hold the faith with partiality. Because what he's saying is, if in verse 1, you have been given a new heart in Christ, if the Lord of glory has revealed himself to you, if he's changed you, if he's saved you, if you are a faithful follower of Christ, you must value all, regardless of status. Brothers and sisters, in the body of Christ, we are equal. There is no room for judgment. There is no category for favoring one over the other. And there is no unity in our unnecessary distinctions. Favoritism, as we said, it will destroy every church. And we live in a culture that rightly, we live in a culture that rightly runs away from any hypocritical church. Those hypocritical churches that say, we value and love our neighbors. We value and love people that are made in the image of God. But then our actions prove otherwise. Here's how one pastor said it. True religion helps the poor, but favoritism insults the poor. True religion is unstained by the world, but favoritism? Favoritism is utterly worldly. So how might you and I fall into this trap of favoritism? Well, when you prefer your age group, that's favoritism. Listen, kids, if you think anyone older than you is a boomer, that's favoritism. You got issues. If you are older and you smugly look down at anyone younger than you, you know, we fall into this trap of where we separate by age. I'm only going to listen to someone that's my age. That's favoritism. When you value people by externals, you value them by the way they dress, perhaps, or the money they have, the car they might drive, the job they possess, or the political team they vote for. Well, how about you parents, grandparents? Do you show favoritism? When you honor and love one child more than another? When you value people only when you can profit from them? I think we do that at times. When you only connect with people in your stage of life or with people who enjoy what you enjoy doing, that's a form of favoritism. When you only interact with people you know, maybe you come to church on a Sunday and the only person you will talk to is the one you've known. What about the newcomer? What about hospitality that you and I are called to? I think we even show favoritism on Sunday mornings, don't we? How about when we look down or ignore singles, those who are childless, those who are disabled? How about when we look down or ignore just on, uh, you know, quirky personalities? You think we don't show favoritism and how we're wired? Oh, yeah. We show favoritism when we celebrate Packers' losses. And we forget about the lions. 
I, I, I hold no partiality. I'm going to celebrate both of those things. You see, here's the reality, brothers and sisters. And here's our confession. We judge by appearances. We judge by preferences and even sinful motivations. But God? Oh, God does not. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Can I confess that too often I look on the outward? See, we may have a number of reasons why we might judge or show partiality in our relationships. Sometimes it's subtle. And sometimes it's just a blind spot in our interactions, and we we just don't see it. That does happen. Other times we're calculated, and we desire the approval of men. That's That's what the example in James 2 is. Someone comes in, and he's showing favoritism to the rich guy. Why? So A lot of that's pride, because he wants the favor of men. Wants to be thought well of. We're, we're often too far concerned with our reputations. And perhaps, some of us, we have anger or bitterness or resentment or, dare I say, even hatred for people who look, act, and believe differently than we do. Brothers and sisters, what would God have us to see and do differently? If you've been on the receiving end of favoritism, it requires effort and intentionality on your part too. You see, if you have received honor, then emulate the words of John the baptizer who said, I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. Did I say that right? Where John the Baptist said, I must decrease and Jesus, he must increase. Model in your actions and remind others that you are no more important than any image bearer. And if you have been neglected, even in this church, in your families, in your school, in your community, in the workplace, if you have been neglected, and this can be both real and imagined, it can, but if you have been neglected, Look to Christ. Look to the one who values the heart. Look to the one who never showed favoritism. Look to the one who brings true intimacy and acceptance. Ultimately, Jesus is the one that satisfies our longings of acceptance. And even if we, like Jesus, are abandoned by the world around us, I have Christ. He doesn't play favorites based on my performance in the Christian life, based on what I look like externally or what group I'm a part of. In Christ, I'm accepted. God help us, Lakewood, to be a local body who values 
in our homes, in our workplace, in our school, and certainly, yes, in the walls of this building and when we do life together outside of this building. Faithful followers of Christ, they value all, regardless of status. But next, we see that faithful followers of Christ value all, not just regardless of status, but in light of the law. Would you read with me, please, verses 8 through 13? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James, he leads us to an interesting conversation in the practice of true religion. True religion values people made in God's image. True religion doesn't show favorites. True religion is lived in light of the law. Wait, what? True religion's lived in light of the law? Haven't we just get, did we just get done with Galatians? The law? I thought Jesus fulfilled the moral law on our behalf. I thought obeying the law didn't earn me favor with God. I thought the law couldn't change me or rescue me. I thought, I thought, you've been saying it a lot, I thought Jesus was enough. My friends, he is. He is. And we addressed this back in our study in Galatians, but I think it'd be good to have a quick refresher here. What is the purpose of the law? Whether it's Leviticus, Jesus, or James, why? Why are we given a law? And here's an example on the screen. We are called, commanded, given a law to love our neighbor. Well, why would we be given that law? Why do we find it in the Levitical code, in the teachings of Jesus, and in our passage here this morning? Well, here's what we considered briefly back in the book of Galatians. The three uses of the law. So what, any law we have, why do we have this law? Why is it being put before me? Well, the first reason we have the law is it's a mirror. The word of God, the law given to us, is a mirror which shows us our sin and need of a Savior. The second is a restraint. Why is the law given? Yes, it shows me my sin. It shows me my need for Jesus. But the law restrains us from doing evil. I think the example I gave in the book of Galatians was speed limits. We have speed limits. Why? As a restraint. Because there are many lead foot grandmas out there who are driving too fast. So the law was given as a restraint. 
But third, the law was also given as a guide. A guide. Given to reveal God's character to us. Given to show us who He is and how we should follow Him. So we come to James and he's telling his readers, he's telling us that if we fulfill and obey the royal law, we're doing well. This particular law and command to love your neighbor as you find it, as you read it, either as we said in the Old Testament or the the lips of Jesus, love your neighbor, it's a requirement and a calling on our life that should guide our behavior in valuing people around us. And you could argue that James is using all three of those functions of the law right here to show us our failure and our sin in playing favorites and our need of Jesus' perfect obedience to this command on our behalf. This command to love your neighbor also restrains us from treating people poorly and showing favoritism and doing harm to others. And this royal law, it guides us. It gives us a vision of how we are to live in the life that God has given us as faithful followers of Christ. But did you notice verse 10 as we read? Look at verse 10 again. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. You see, James here introduces what many Christians, and certainly people in our culture, are not too fond of. An all-or-nothing reality to the Christian life. As a faithful follower, every area of our life is to be under the Lordship of Christ. Favoritism, our partiality, can be one of those, as one author calls it, can be one of those respectable sins that we tolerate. It's a book by Jerry Bridges. You should get it. And favoritism, it's a sin, but it's, it's, it's a respectable sin. It's, it's a small sin. And we create unbiblical categories like this in our mind. So we say, well, I tell little white lies, not big lies, just little ones. Dinner was great, honey. I fudge on my taxes. I'm discontent. I'm impatient. I'm an angry driver. I'm an unthankful person. I'm sexually sinful in ways that are unseen. I judge people in my mind and heart, but it's okay. These are small. These are little sins. At least I didn't kill anyone today. I didn't cheat on my wife. At least I'm not LGBTQ+. No. No. James reminds us that there is no category for this this kind of thinking. Little sins, little sins may not have the same explosive outcome as big sins, but they are equal in their disobedience to what God calls us to. Our lack of valuing others and playing favorites is sinful. And it breaks God's law, and therefore I'm guilty of all of it. And it leaves me in need of a Savior, as the kids would say, on the daily. 
every day. So this echoes, and James does this throughout the entire book in his letter. He's constantly echoing the teaching of Jesus. And it made me think of Jesus' parable in Luke 18, where Jesus tells a parable of two men, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee prays something like this, God, God, I thank you. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not like this other man. I do this and I do this and I do this. What is he doing in that moment? Oh, God, thank you that I don't have the big explosive sins of someone in my culture while neglecting the little sins in his life. How did that tax collector pray? He wouldn't even look up, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says it was the second man. (laughs) It was the second man who went down to his house justified and forgiven. It was the man who had the posture of said, I'm a sinner. Yeah, maybe I don't have the big sins of that person, but I'm a sinner. And Jesus says it was that man who went down, forgiven and justified. It was the second man who recognized that any deviation from God's laws and commands, even the tiny little one of playing favorites and judging, It meant that he was a lawbreaker and in need of a savior. Here's how one writer commented on this. This is the problem. If people pick and choose what they obey, then they are still very much their own God. This approach forgets that God gave every law. If we disobey any law, we disobey God. We are rejecting him as Lord and lawgiver. The sin of favoritism, brothers and sisters, or partiality, it's a big deal in God's eyes. So what do we do with this? We are to value people in light of the law. Uh, Look again at what he tells us to do in verse 12. Verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We are to be doers of God's word, not just hearers. Faithful followers of Christ are to act and speak as though God has given them a law to obey, to follow. We are to live as though Jesus is master and Lord of our life. We are to live as though Jesus has rescued us and given us a new heart to obey and to love. And what does it mean to be judged under the law of liberty, of freedom? Well, here's a helpful way to maybe paraphrase verse 12. As you face the temptation to show favoritism, remember the judgment and act like people whom Christ has freed to show genuine love. Brothers and sisters, we are to act as redeemed, rescued changed people. We act on the basis that Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. He suffered judgment in our place, and now he lives in us to enable us by his Spirit to obey and fulfill this command on our life. But the clincher, the clincher for me is verse 13. Look again, he says, for judgment is without mercy 
to the one who has shown no mercy. You don't have mercy, judgment's coming your way. And again, James goes back to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught a parable in Matthew 18 about an unforgiving servant. And if you're unaware, if you've forgotten, it's a story about a man who could not pay his debts and his master was kind and forgave him his debts. And strolling out of court with his debt canceled, the servant finds his friend and chokes him and threatens him until he pays a small debt. Well, the master caught wind of this hypocrisy and threw the servant into prison and into judgment. And so Jesus says, will be the same with any of us who do not forgive and show mercy to our brother or sister from the heart. Well, how does this connect to favoritism? We are to value all regardless of status in light of the law. Why? For what end? To what purpose? To show mercy and to show love to everyone made in God's image. Look at our last phrase in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this can be taken two ways. We can understand it as mercy on our part. And I think there is merit to that. If in our human interactions with one another, if we have mercy rather than judgment, well, it does fulfill the royal law. And it gives us the power to triumph, to shape a culture that sees our petty judging of one another and to do something better. So, yeah, we, in our interactions, what if, what if we had a culture, even a church culture, where there was mercy, mercy triumphed over judgment in our interactions. But more likely, I believe, James is giving this as a reminder of the active obedience of Christ and his perfect work on the cross. It's kind of an undeveloped, shorthand way of pointing to the gospel. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I wonder... Have you failed not just to value others in the light of God's law, but have you failed to live your entire life under his word? Yeah, yeah, I have. Do you see in you a wayward heart? Yeah, yeah, I see that. Do you see thoughts, words, and actions that are judging sinful, and even wicked at times? Yeah, I see those things. Do you feel like a failure as a mom or dad? Yeah. Are you a teenager who's discontent, angry, and desiring to be master of your own life? Yeah, I'm an adult teenager. Are you an older person who plays favorites and complains about people you don't understand? Yes, I am. The scriptures plainly teach that you and I deserve judgment for our sin. 
<laughs> Didn't you read? Didn't you read verse 13? Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to share just an encouraging word that I read this week. Daniel Doriani says this. Believers fail, yet by their faith in the Redeemer, God's mercy to his children triumphs over the judgment we deserve. In Christ, mercy triumphs. When a true believer strives to obey and fails, the final word is still grace. For that reason, a sinning, failing Christian never despairs, never descends into self-discrimination. Through Christ, we are united to the triune God, the one who demands mercy, shows mercy. For disciples, God's mercy always is his last word. There's a good chance some of you, some of us, come into a church service like this and you really beat yourself up. You love the first function of the law. Yes, show me my sin. Be a mirror. Show me where I'm failing. I don't value. I show favoritism and partiality. I fail to practice true religion. And if you beat yourself up with the law, but forget that mercy triumphs judgment, you will leave here heavy-hearted, broken, and missing the gospel. My friends, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Whether you have failed in showing value and favoritism in a wrong way, or you're currently failing in it now, mercy triumphs judgment. Hardest verse in the Bible for Matt Nagel to believe, Romans 8.1. There is, therefore, no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. <laughs> really? No judgment? No condemnation? No anger towards me? Yes. Do you know why? Because Jesus is enough. Because when he looks at us, he sees his son. So your imperfect obedience, he's pleased with. Isn't that freeing? Brothers and sisters, doesn't that enlarge your heart to say, oh, this is the God I will worship. This is the God I will pray to, trust in. This is the God that I will come in on a Sunday morning and I'm still foggy. I haven't had my coffee and the kids have been a little crazy, but I'm coming. I'm coming here this morning because I want to elevate and assign worth to this kind of God. So yes, I will pray and give my time and my energy to people. I will give my money so the gospel goes out to our community and to the ends of the earth. I will come here and declare to submit myself to the word of God and be changed by it. Because mercy triumphs judgment. That is the God that I will give my life to.
When we fail, we cling to Christ. And, and when we see some obedience and growth in our life, we praise Him for His enablement. Faithful followers of Christ take action. Faithful followers of Christ value all. Would you pray with me that that would be true of our life this week? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, in his righteousness, asking, pleading that you would change our hearts, that your word would, would be what it says it is, that it would be sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it would change us, that it would reveal to us who you are, the beauty of Christ and his gospel, and that it would guide us even this week, to value people, to not play favorites, to not judge, to not make unnecessary distinctions. Oh God, would we be a people who display the love of Christ. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.